Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we lovingly drizzle weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe, and on this edition, we'll feature wildlife corridors, an echo race around the world in 80 days, and correlation of the week. But first up, here's the news with Caitlin Howlett. Prepare yourselves for the first eco-race around the world in 80 days. Zero-emission cars will race around the world, where six eco-modified sports cars zip around 40,000 kilometres of the Northern Hemisphere across four continents in 80 days. The cars will travel over mountains and through deserts, all without burning fossil fuels. We will have to wait until March 2010, but it's hoped that the race will encourage improved technology that could eventually filter down into electric consumer cars. Students at the Imperial College have been donated an SR3 vehicle by racing car manufacturer Radical Sports Car, which is worth £50,000. That's about $102,000 Australian. They are currently turning this into a high-performance electric vehicle. The race will begin at the Geneva Motor Show and then go on to Turkey, Saudi Arabia and China before taking a boat to the US and Canada and then flying back to Europe to complete the circuit. Climate change has been found to shrink Scottish sheep. Milder winter weather has caused a wild breed of Scottish sheep to shrink in size by around 5% over the last 25 years. The US journal Science published a paper last week suggesting a mechanism by which climate change can very rapidly act to alter the size and shape of a species. Turns out that the slower-growing, smaller sheep are able to survive the milder winters, meaning that small animals are not being weeded out of the population. The research also suggests a young mum effect, whereby these smaller, younger animals are having a relatively smaller offspring because they are unable to produce the larger lambs. It's a really good example of the value of long-term research in revealing how environmental change affects our living world. Global warming has been found to have a profound effect on many species, from causing some to move to higher latitudes or altitudes to track cool conditions, or to altering the migration routes of others. But there have been few cases documented where climate change has yet had a direct effect on the size of the animal like this one. Coulston from the Imperial College in London, England, said that, unfortunately, it's a little too early to tell whether a warming world would lead to pocket-sized sheep. Now, astronomers have detected the first strong evidence of a new mid-size classed black hole, and this could help prove how supermassive black holes form. Until now, black holes have either been supermassive, millions to billions of times the mass of the sun, or stellar mass black holes, small black holes that form from the death of stars. The find, reported in the journal Nature, might be the missing link to theories on how these supermassive black holes form. 
It's been found that sex actually improves sperm quality. Men who want to become fathers should have sex or ejaculate daily in order to maximise sperm quality. Scientists report. Australian fertility specialist David Greening recruited 118 men. Greening presented his findings to the European Society of Human Reproduction and Embryology in Amsterdam, the Netherlands, on Tuesday last week. He found 34% of the group sperm was damaged before the test, and it was therefore classified as poor in quality. Greening found before the test that 34% of the men's group sperm was damaged, meaning that it was classified as poor in quality. The men were asked to ejaculate daily for seven days, but were not given any drugs or told to make any changes to their lifestyle. After seven days, they were examined again. It was found the damaged sperm rate fell to 26%, placing it in the category of fair. About 80% of the men saw an increase in their sperm quality, and many of them moved into the good range from the poor or fair categories. However, about 20% saw a decline in sperm quality. Men who donate or have their sperm collected are usually told to ejaculate two or three days before collection, but this study may challenge this ingrained idea. Thank you, Caitlin. Next up, Mark West has the correlation of the week: the connection between cricket and the weather. As we have shown on this show a number of times, cricket fans love their maths and statistics. So it should come as no surprise that another cricket math story has recently come out. This time from the University of Reading, linking cricket success with the weather. I only blog and podcast my maths cricket geekiness. These guys get research funding for it. Manoj Joshi has shown that the El Nino Southern Oscillation (ENSO) or ENSO phenomenon has a significant effect on the results of the Ashes Cricket Series between Australia and England when the series is held in Australia. The Australian cricket team is more likely to succeed after El Nino years, while the English cricket team does better following La Nina years, which is the opposite phase. Their study called "Could El Nino Southern Oscillation Affect the Results of the Ashes Series in Australia?" was published recently in the journal Weather. I didn't quite believe this at first, so I took their data, redid the maths, and it turns out that they are correct. However, the media interpretations of these results are not surprisingly a little over the top. Whilst there is a significant correlation between the state of El Nino in the year before the Ashes series and the result, the correlation itself is weak. This is an important point to keep in mind with any correlation. Strength and significance are two different things. Strength refers to how well the data sets move with each other. Significance refers to how likely it is that the correlation occurred by chance. For example, you can easily get a strong correlation between two data sets if you have only a small amount of data.
But as you lack data, it is unlikely that the relationship will actually be significant. You can't actually prove anything with a small amount of data. However, in our case, the correlation is weak, but the relationship is significant. The conclusion to this study should be that Enzo plays a very small role in determining the success. The conclusion to this study should be that Enzo plays a very small role in determining the results of Ashes series in Australia, but that other factors are likely to be more important, and that simple noise and randomness will probably have more of an effect than the phase of Enzo. It is only over time that this correlation can be teased out. The study does admit this, though, with Joshi saying, There are, of course, many different factors governing the outcome of any given sporting contest, which would act as noise in this analysis. But I think his statement that the study could even influence whether the England touring team should include more fast bowlers or more swing bowlers is probably a little bold. So how does all this work? There are two phases of Enzo. During El Niño, the eastern equatorial Pacific Ocean warms by about one degree. For Australia, this means low rainfall and high temperatures. La Niña is the reverse, with more rain and a drop in temperature. The study analysed the results of all Ashes matches held in Australia from 1882 to 2007 and found that during El Niño years, the Australian team won 13 out of 17 series, which is 76%, but only 5 out of 13 played in La Niña years, 38%. England has only won one Ashes series in the last 100 years following an El Niño event, and this was the famous or infamous Bodyline series of 32-33. The author speculates that cricket pitch conditions can affect the outcome of a match, with the drier pitches of El Niño favouring fast Australian bowlers, with the English slower swing bowlers enjoying La Niña. And now to the maths. I have reproduced the results from the paper on my website, www.mrscienceshow.com, so get over there if you'd actually like to see the charts and some of the calculations that I've performed. What the author did was correlate the series result, which is English wins minus Australian wins, against the Nino 3 index, which is the mean monthly temperature anomaly in the eastern tropical Pacific. What they found is a very weak correlation. The R-squared value is only 0.1. R-squared is what we call a coefficient of determination and gives some information about the goodness of fit. A value this low is generally accepted as suggesting no correlation at all. One interpretation is to say that about 10% of the correlation can be explained by the Nino 3 index. The paper itself quotes R instead of R squared, so R seems a bit higher and the correlation seems better. But to determine whether a relationship is strong or not, you need R squared. Joshi then tested for significance, and if you'd like to see the maths of this significance test, get over to my website, www.mrscienceshow.com, where I've reproduced it, and actually done it another way as well. And when they did this, they indeed found that the correlation was significant. So what all this means is that there is a very weak but significant correlation, very close to zero, between the state of El Nino and the Ashes series result. I wouldn't put any money on either team based on this conclusion. In any case, Australia's going to win. And that was Mark West with his prediction for the Ashes. Trust the cricket man, not the weather man. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion at 2SCR.com. Brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Next up, Caitlin Howlett wanders the corridors for wildlife that will save the species. Almost half of all mammal extinctions on the planet in the last 200 years have occurred in Australia. 
We are currently experiencing the sixth mass global extinction, and it's being caused by humans. Most species lost in Australia have been in the arid and semi-arid zones. Some would even say that our environment has already been lost, and that it's too late to even bother anymore. But scientists are prioritising to make sure that we focus efforts in the right places. Conservation scientists have armed themselves with the very best available science through GIS tracking and mini weather stations the size of a five-cent piece. We've got a pretty special feature here in Australia that's all too often ignored. It's a defining feature of the eastern coast, stretching 2,800 kilometres. 96% of the population living in New South Wales is within 100 kilometres of it. It supplies fresh water to 93% of the population on the east coast, or 74% of the Australian population in total. It's a beautiful, lofty landscape that combines both the Great Dividing Range and the Great Escarpment, and it's called the Great Eastern Ranges. It stretches from southern Victoria to the Atherton Tablelands in far north Queensland. It acts as a natural barrier that separates the catchments and the rivers that flow inland, and the rivers that flow to the coast. Most importantly of all, it's a stronghold for our richest biodiversity, because it has such a range of habitats, from grassland to woodland, mallee scrubs, and lush untamed forests, up to the highest mountain in Australia, well above the snow line. There are patches of extremely fertile soil used for cropping. Rolling hills used for sheep grazing, and small villages that suddenly become mini cities in the ski season. This landscape really is unique. Scientists believe that despite the changes we've already made, these ecosystems have still got a chance in the Great Eastern Ranges. That's why, in 2007, the New South Wales Environmental Trust allocated seven million dollars to be spent on a three-year program to implement a wildlife corridor. Along 1,200 kilometres of the ranges in New South Wales, conservation agencies including Greening Australia, Ausgreen, Nature Conservation Trust of New South Wales, and Bush Heritage Australia have all jumped on board. It's called the Great Eastern Ranges Initiative, and the catchphrase is "Connecting People, Connecting Nature." The idea is to bring the knowledge of conservation scientists together with communities and industry. In the past, there hasn't been much dialogue between these groups. And the idea is to create a large mosaic or matrix, other than a corridor, as such as most people would usually see it. In the past, conservation scientists believed that they could conserve nature through making national parks and reserves. While these reserves do play an important role in conservation, they don't sustain healthy ecosystems in the long term. Reserves too often become isolated islands of vegetation. What we need to have healthy ecosystems in Australia is a range of different connectivity options. What works for one species to move into a habitat won't necessarily work for another. We all know about the complex web of life principle, where a range of species, for example, the simple hierarchy of plants, herbivores, and carnivores, is important to keep an ecosystem in check. And an overabundance of one species will put the whole system out of whack. Just look at your typical UK scenario: plants, rabbits, foxes. Too many rabbits, lots more foxes can eat them. Take out the foxes from that ecosystem, and the rabbits will eat all of the grass. And then the rabbits won't have anything to eat, and they may well even go extinct. But it shouldn't really be confused with a so-called balance as such. An ecosystem is never truly in balance. There is always constant interaction. 
Land surrounding reserves is always going to be managed for farming, industry or other uses. In the last hundred years in Australia, we've established a network of thousands of kilometres of reserves and national parks. The wildlife corridor will take around a hundred years or so. That's about how long it's taken us for those national parks. So it's going to be a long process that will take generations. 25% of the species in the Great Eastern Ranges are endemic and many of them are critically threatened or endangered. But there are some positive stories. Here's some examples of some of the threatened species that have been improving already as a result of the wildlife corridor. The mountain pygmy possum. Here's one animal that really lives up to its name. A fully grown adult fits in the palm of your hand and weighs as much as a small egg. The only Australian mammal to be entirely restricted to the alpine zone, it lives in the highest mountains of Victoria and New South Wales, with the last few populations on the slopes of popular ski resorts. The alpine habitat they depend on is shrinking due to loss of habitat and rising temperatures. There are fewer opportunities to breed with other populations due to the reduced connectivity between the mountain ranges. But ski resort operators and conservationists are coming together to help reconserve these degraded and fragmented habitats and reduce disturbances from skiing. Mountain pygmy possums are really active climbers, so as the trees and the shrubs planted in the corridors grow, they'll be able to seize the opportunities provided by the newly available room to move. It's hoped that the populations will start to increase once the boulders and trees and all of their natural habitat comes back and when they're given a little bit of time away from all of those crazy skiers on the slopes. So the mountain pygmy possum is a little bit like the skiers. They tend to stay away from all those dangerous snowboarders. The corroboree frog. A corroboree is an Indigenous Australian ceremony where participants paint themselves in yellow lines, similar to the beautiful bright yellow markings of the northern and southern corroboree frog. These are tiny frogs, about the size of a five-cent piece, and they move between two specific habitats to breed and to feed. They've only got one breeding season per year, and they don't hatch unless there's plenty of rain or melted snow. As we know, climate change is disturbing our natural rainfall patterns. Bogs are drying out and habitat is being lost. But the wildlife corridor is supporting the growth of new habitats and it's hoped that this will allow the corroboree frog to have options to move into and out of these new locations as the bogs dry out. The diamond firetail finch was once widespread across all of New South Wales. It's now only in isolated pockets. These guys live in open forests and woodlands, a habitat that is now patchy. Climate change is affecting the renewal of these remaining forests. Due to climate change, scientists expect more fires in the areas that these finches live. This species will benefit greatly from the wildlife corridor because they forage between distances and it will allow them to escape fires and other types of catastrophes that they might experience. Early in 2009, Peter Garrett announced the addition of alpine sphagnum bogs to the Australian Threatened Species List. This means that they are now classified as endangered. They create very acidic conditions with a pH of just 3.0. This means that no microorganisms can live in there, and so the environment acts a bit like a preservative. Human bodies thousands of years old have been found in sphagnum bogs in Europe. Due to its sterile nature and amazing sponge-like abilities, it can hold 20 times its own weight in water, this moss has a direct commercial value. It's been used for centuries 
as natural bandages, diapers, and even in feminine hygiene products. It's also sold in nurseries for soil conditioning, filtration, mulch, and as a medium for growing carnivorous plants and mushrooms. The remaining pockets of alpine sphagnum bogs in Australia are vulnerable and they're likely to suffer from unpredictable events such as fire, natural disasters and disturbance to natural rainfall patterns, all of which are more likely to be devastating with the way our climate is changing. Interesting fact, once it was thought that sphagnum moss was in danger of becoming extinct because of model train enthusiasts who use it for making little model trees. But hopefully, with the corridor and with the new announcement earlier this year, alpine sphagnum bogs will be able to survive. The spot-tailed quoll. This is the largest remaining marsupial carnivore in Australia. These cuddly-looking critters are actually quite ferocious, twice the size of other quoll species. The spot-tailed quoll will eat just about anything, from birds, possums, gliders, rabbits, eggs, dead animals, and they can even kill and eat a small wallaby. Solitary hunters, the quoll species, used to be widespread across Australia, travelling up to 10 kilometres in one night to return to their den. Lack of room to hunt and lack of prey are now major threats to quoll populations. The Great Eastern Ranges Initiative is connecting and conserving what remains of the quoll's habitat, giving them freedom to move between suitable hunting grounds, which will also reconnect the breeding partners together. Interesting fact about these guys, spot-tailed quolls were in fact one of the first animals to be described by European scientists. Captain Cook called them quolls, as it sounded similar to the name that Indigenous Australians gave them. All in all, it's hoped that the Great Eastern Ranges Initiative and the Wildlife Corridor will help a lot of these threatened species to survive. That was Caitlin Howlett showing us that a corridor for wildlife is the way forward, like a scene from Jumanji. And finally, a story from the Washington Post that's also been taken up by a new scientist about the Iranian elections and a scientific method to detect whether or not there's been any fraud. Bernd Bieber and Alexandra Skako, PhD candidates in political science at Columbia University, have looked at the actual numbers that have come from the election. They've used two different methods to analyse the election results with statistics. First off, humans are very bad at making up numbers. When we go for random numbers, cognitive psychologists have found that participants in lab experiments don't write random digits very well. Some digits turn up far more frequently than others. So if you get a human to generate some random numbers or fake some statistics, and you get random ones or real-life ones in which some of it will be random, like the last few digits will be random, then you can tell whether or not they've been cooked statistics or whether they're real. So... What they did is they used the results from the Ministry of the Interior in Iran that were published on the website of Press TV, a news channel funded by the Iranian government. They provided data for 29 provinces and they examined the number of votes of each of the four main candidates. And what they found out of 116 numbers is too many sevens and not enough fives in the last digit. So they've looked at just on digits seven and nine. Each digit from zero, one, two and so on should appear at the end of about 10% of the vote counts. But in Iran's provincial results, the digit 7 appears 17% of the time, and only 4% of the results end in the number 5. Two such departures from the average is a spike of 17% or more in one digit and a drop of 4% or less in another are extremely unlikely. 
fewer than four in a hundred non-fake elections would produce such numbers. As a point of comparison, they've analysed the state-by-state vote counts for John McCain and Barack Obama in last year's US presidential election. The frequencies of the last digits in those election returns never rise above 14% or fall below 6%, which is a pattern you'd expect to see in 70 out of 100 fair elections. But that's not all. They have a second technique. Psychologists have found that humans have trouble generating non-adjacent digits, which is digits that are not next to each other, like 6-4 or 1-7, as opposed to 2-3, as frequently as you would expect in a sequence of random numbers. So to look for numbers that are too close together, that have been generated by humans rather than by chance, they examine the pairs of last and second-to-last digits in the Iran vote counts. On average, if the results had not been manipulated, 70% of these pairs should consist of distinct, non-adjacent digits, not 1-2-3. Unfortunately, in the data from Iran, only 62% of their pairs contain non-adjacent digits. Now, 62% may not sound very different from 70%, But the chance that a fair election would produce a difference this large is less than 4.2%. And while their first test, variation in last-digit frequencies, suggests that the vote counts were pretty irregular, the lack of non-adjacent digits is very striking and points to a rigged election. So each of these two tests provides strong evidence that the numbers released by the Ministry of the Interior were manipulated, but taken together, they leave very little room for reasonable doubt. The chance that a fair election would produce both too few non-adjacent digits, and the suspicious deviations in the last-digit frequencies described earlier is less than 0.005. In other words, a bet that the numbers are clean is a 1 in a 200 long shot. Science can tell you whether or not the books have been cooked. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or wild, passionate praise, if you'd like to be part of the Diffusion team and hear your own voice passionately communicating science on radio, then send email to diffusion at 2SER.com. That's diffusion at 2SER.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Mark West and Caitlin Howlett. Diffusion has been produced in the studios of 2SCR Sydney and is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Next, Jonathan Coulter sings I Feel Fantastic. Quoi